Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the What's Next podcast. I am your host, Tiffany Bova, and I have the pleasure of having two guests today, sort of double the complete amazing content than usual. Uh, my guests are Catalina Daniels and Jim Sherman. Catalina spent the first 17 years of her career at McKinsey, where she became a partner. She left McKinsey to become an entrepreneur and eventually an angel investor. She is a venture partner at Entrepreneurs Roundtable Accelerator, a prominent New York-based tech accelerator where she mentors U.S. entrepreneurs and helps non-U.S. entrepreneurs expand into the U.S. Jim Sherman, he started his career at Bain. I'd love to have coffee with the two of you over that conversation. As a consultant and then spent several years working in media with Time, Inc. and Pearson. In 1997, he launched the internet division of Martha Stewart Living. He then became a serial internet entrepreneur and an active angel investor in New York startups, has been a mentor to entrepreneurs, and sits on the board of Harvard Business School's Alumni Angels of New York. Welcome both to the show. Thank you, Tiffany. Thank you for having us. I'm super excited. You know, I, I get a lot of people on the show who have opinions about startups, right? Sometimes it's an entrepreneur. Sometimes it is someone who came and took over a startup. But I'm super excited about this conversation uh, about your new book, Smart Startups, which includes advice from 18 Harvard Business School founders. But before we get into that, we have to start out with bullish and bearish. Are you ready? We're ready. All right. Each of you can answer. Bullish, you're for it. Bearish, you're against it. A startup founded by an AI. Mm, bullish. bullish. <laughs> oh, at the same time. Love that. Okay. We're going to talk about that. So hold that thought. All right. Next one. Autonomous kitchens. Bearish. Autonomous okay. kitchen. Um, yeah, bearish. Okay. You guys are in sync. All right. The next one, underwater hotel, bullish or bearish? Oh, bearish. Well, travel's my favorite subject. So bullish. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody always says, then says, how do I get there with my luggage? Right. <laughs> like, sounds like a good idea, but I don't. My thinking is I don't like deep diving. So I'm like bearish. Okay. All right. Well, two out of three, I'll take that you were in sync on, but I loved that you both said bullish on startup founded by an AI. Why not just start there? We'll, we'll start there. We'll get to the book in one second. So you were both very passionately a yes on that. So I'd love to hear why. Jim, let's start with you. Well, actually, I wanted to start with Catalina in a way because she was the first one who flagged for me when uh, this goes back, I think about a year ago or so, I think there was an article that she had read about how one of the AI companies had come up with a new venture idea for someone who actually launched it and it began to make money. And so the fact that an AI tool could actually come up with a new venture idea that was practical, that an individual could actually execute on was pretty impressive. So anyway, that's why, you know, because I think we both have seen this happen from these AI tools. That's why I think I said I was bullish on it. How about you, Catalina? Yeah, please go ahead. Yeah, well, so it, it exists, uh, Tiffany. So there is this Portuguese guy. It, it's not an article. He's on LinkedIn. He made a big story about it on LinkedIn. He posted a question to ChatGPT and said, I've got $1,000 one day a week. Um, help me start a business that will become profitable after a month or something like that. And he wrote about it every day. And I thought that was fascinating. 
The reason why I say bullish is we live in an era where AI is everything. Well, I mean, at least, you know, in the tech ecosystem, you hear AI everywhere these days. And so I think it will fundamentally influence any kind of action and trajectory of, uh, of a founder going forward. So that's why I said bullish. I find it fascinating because I feel like sometimes if you sat there with a blank slate, it could almost be overwhelming where the AI might be able to be that partner in your journey, right? Like I'm really passionate about these two or three things. How could I make it a business maybe, right? Or I really want to solve this problem. What, what hasn't been thought of? I think the curiosity of asking the question into the AI, I find it fascinating, right? That someone's like, I need to read that article. It's really, Catalina, I can't wait to find it, right? Where it's like, it's a thousand dollars a week or something that it was a money-based, right? But if you said, look, if I really wanted to solve for something, how could I do it more efficiently or effectively than the past, right? For a startup idea, I guess. Well, I think that in the case of AI, as an entrepreneur, you're constantly short of great input or expert advice, right? You're often, it's a lonely journey in the very beginning. It's just you. And so I think in particular early on, when you don't have an entire team of experts around you, AI is like your co-pilot, right? In fact, I think Microsoft even uses that term. I mean, so you have like a co-pilot that can be there to help you research in a very efficient way for topics where you may not have any expertise at all. And so what may have taken you a great deal of time to research and investigate and become more an authority on, AI is going to be or is uh, a great assistant and I think will empower entrepreneurs in really incredible ways uh, and in many ways that we just can't even think of today. Well, as you say in your book, Smart Startups, some of your pearls of wisdom, there's so many that I really enjoyed learning more about, but we've just uncovered that AI can potentially give us a great idea, but that great idea is only as good as its business model, which you uh, clearly highlight in the book. Maybe you can, because I couldn't agree more. I think it's all in the execution. I got a lot of great ideas in my head and none are making me any money kind of a thing, right? So what is the power of a great business model and how do you get to that place in the journey? So let me start by the beginning and hand it over to Jim. What we advocate for is as a founder, you need to think about your business model along the journey you know, of, of your startup. And it all starts at the ideation level. And not many people think about the business model at that point in time. But what we talk about is shallow dives. And what we mean by that, we're talking about a underwater hotel and deep diving. Shallow dives is not going deep, is staying at the surface, but getting a sense of what the business model is, is going to be. So... What I'm talking about is you're a founder, you have an idea, you haven't started yet, but you're convinced you're onto something. You talk to people, you got great feedback, which is another thing we say, you know, you need to get great feedback before you go for something. And at the beginning, what you want to do is, is basically check that you understand what the business model is going to look like. Just the arms and legs of the business model. What is it going to take? Where are the revenues going to come from? What are your target customers? Do you need partners? How important are operations or logistics? What are the building blocks of the costs, etc.? And that's where it all starts in terms of the business model. In the beginning, when you have an idea. Now, 
once you go with your idea to the market and you start implementing it, you might need to change things as you go. And that's where, you know, your point becomes extremely important. But I'll, I'll, I'll hand it over to Jim to talk about that. Yeah, no, just taking it one step further, Tiffany. I mean, I think in terms of really assessing that idea, we, we talk about the ideation triangle when you're assessing things. So is it a large opportunity or not? And we draw a big distinction between a large market versus large opportunity. Those are separate. And so it's very important that you understand what problem are you solving and are you solving it for a large potential pool of customers? Because otherwise it will never be successful if you're really not going after a large opportunity. So that's a very important distinction, market versus opportunity. Second, when thinking about the business model, part of it also depends on, do you have relevant skills to actually execute that business model? So the relevant skills are not the same as industry expertise. In other words, the fact that you may or may not have industry experience, that's not as much the issue as much as do you have relevant skills that will help you to execute whatever the vision is? That's really crucial. And then the third element of what we call this ideation triangle is uh, passion. You obviously have to have passion for the idea because it's the passion that's going to carry you through and give you the resilience that you need in order to be successful. Just coming back to what Catalina was saying about the shallow dives, if you do have this ideation triangle that you're trying to zero in on, on an idea, the shallow dives are really crucial in further investigating and validating, are you really solving a big enough problem? Why now? You have to answer that question. Why is this business opportunity a good one today? Which perhaps is another way of saying, well, why wasn't it possible in the past? The arms and legs of the business model that Catalina uh, referred to, in other words, what's your go-to-market plan? How are you overcoming the hurdles of operations uh, for the business? Any technology challenges? All of those things have to be considered. And ultimately, those unit economics, can this be profitable at the end of the day? And, and to have a sense of how much capital are you going to need to raise in order to, to pull it off? How much capital will be needed to get it to uh, profitability. So those are the kinds of things to consider. You, you threw out there a very big question and it's, it's, it's probably you know, the most important one in the early stage because it's going to determine whether you get from, from zero to one, let alone one to a hundred. Yeah, and I'll tell you, you know, having been a former research fellow at Gartner for you know, a decade, I would tell you working with startups, one of the very first questions is this one, what's the right business model, right? They would stumble through, what is it? But within your triangle, you said market opportunity and then sort of the size of the market. And, and I think that what I found anyway was many startups don't know where to go to get the delineation and distinction between those two things, right? They see it's a billion dollar opportunity or market opportunity, but that doesn't mean maybe they can go get it, right? And so there is a distinction between those things and if someone's listening and says, I have a good idea, right? I've gone through the exercise. I've done a little channel dive. I've talked to people. And, but I want to understand, is there really a big enough opportunity? How do I get my hands on that kind of information um, to prove to myself that it's worth the effort? That's a key question as a founder, Tiffany. So for us, the difference between a market and an opportunity is that as an entrepreneur, you need to address a need or solve a problem in a market. And to capture part of that market, you need to be crystal clear in the beginning on what kind of problem you solve or what kind of 
solution you bring to that market. And believe it or not, but we see a lot of entrepreneurs not being very clear on that. They just get blindsided by the size of the market. They believe they bring a solution, but they're not very clear on what that solution is. Now, most of the founders we talk to either developed an idea because they experienced the problem themselves in their lives or in the life of their close friends or family or whatever, and that gave them the conviction that it was a real interesting problem that, you know, could be turned into a venture in that market. Some other founders didn't base it on personal experience, but analyzed it from a more rational point of view and came to the conclusion that an interesting idea would be worth pursuing, although not based on something uh, they had experienced themselves. In both cases, you know, we believe it's absolutely critical in the beginning to not keep the idea to yourself, but to talk to your target customers not your family, not your friends, but your target customers, and talk about the solution you bring so that you get feedback from them, okay? If you talk to family and friends, be aware that these people will always be positive. They like you, so they will always like your idea by definition. You need to be make sure that you talk to your target customers and that you get feedback from them. And one of the points we make is you only know that your idea is good enough to go after if the feedback early on that you get is overwhelmingly positive. You want people to really be interested, to really be super positive about the idea that you discuss with them. Once you've done that, you can go on to develop a minimum viable product or Actually, the, really the minimum you need to put in front of the client, just the front end, not the back end, just, you know, so that they get the idea of what the product is going to be like and take the following step and see if they remain as enthusiastic and if the feedback remains as positive. And I would say that once you get to that stage, the next question I consistently got, and I'm guessing you did as well, just based on the pearls of wisdom from the book is when do I hire my first salesperson? But you and I, we all agree that the CEO's role is really as this chief sales officer, right? And when they're a founder, they have to go out and not only sell the idea, sell themselves, you know, whether they're raising capital or trying to actually move quote unquote product in some way, but it doesn't mean everyone is good at selling. I mean, just because they're good at an idea or a good business person, I know a lot of founders we're not good at selling. What do you what do you say to someone who's like, look, I've got a great idea and I just don't know how to go about improving that? I'm going to put in air quotes, you know, sales skills because they are so much more than just you know the act of selling. Well, I think that you're hitting on you know one of our key chapters, which is titled "You Are the Chief Sales Officer," and and what we mean by that is not just that it's important for you as a founder to be out there selling your product or service, but it, it's really a little broader in the definition. You need to overcome whatever the hurdles are to sales. So for example, it could be distribution or it could be technology or it could be an operating partnership that you need. Whatever are those hurdles, you as the chief salesperson need to break through them. If I think about my own business at Sherman's Travel that I started a long time ago, an online uh, travel, event, uh, travel media company, a key obstacle was building a large audience. It's an advertising business model, and so we needed to have a large audience of travelers that the advertisers would want to reach. 
the way I got it off the ground was striking a distribution partnership, a co-venture with the New York Times travel group. So I actually rented their e-newsletter list of 500,000 New York Times travelers every week, and we would send out a co-branded Sherman's Top Deals newsletter every week. That's how I got the business off the ground because I knew I could sell the advertising, but I had a hurdle in terms of having a big enough distribution or audience for the product. So every founder CEO needs to break through that. And then at the end of the day, you've got to be good at sales. If you're not good at that, and by the way, it's hard to learn it. I don't want to mince words here. If you're, if you're not good at sales, if you're not great at it, you need a co-founder who, who is. You need to have someone on the team that is going to help you with this. And by the way, it's not just about selling you know, to that uh, business customer or any, any particular party. It's also sales skills that relate to how effective you can be at fundraising. That's going to be crucial. Those sales skills are essential for your fundraising capability. And also in terms of hiring, a key attribute of a, a, a founder CEO is an ability to attract your founding team, your early hires when you have nothing to show. So you've got to be great at sales in, in, in onboarding and attracting uh, talent to your team. So you've, you've got to be good at this. Uh, you can train, you can, you can try to learn it, you can push yourself more. It's useful to take some coaching classes, perhaps. Uh, there are a number of uh, sales coaches out there in the market that can help train you. But at the end of the day, it is a very hard skill to simply learn on your own. And I think if you're not great at it, if you don't think you're going to be the right party for it, then you need to have a co-founder, somebody else on the team who will be able to carry it forward. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I'd say hand in hand with being a great salesperson, and that's why I put sale, the word sales in air quotes, because to your point, it isn't just about selling product. It's about recruiting talent, raising money, right? getting people to believe in the idea. And I think the foundation of that anyway is storytelling, right? It's kind of the combination of you have to be able to tell the story of why you, why your product, why now, you know, all the sort of whys, right? And I think that that's sometimes where uh, founders get a little hung up, right? It's either, especially in the technology space, they're very technically savvy, but it doesn't mean they're extrovert good at selling and storytelling. You know, they're just really good on the technical side of the house. And that's why I said they sometimes do that founder selling motion versus really looking at sales or distribution or go to market or channels, all of those topics in a more holistic way um, so that they can be successful. Fair point. Oh, it's totally a fair point. I mean, storytelling skills are absolutely essential. And that, that is displayed both in terms of whatever pitch deck you're putting together in terms of visuals and presentation, but also how you present. How do you present the opportunity? How are you communicating it? There's no doubt the, the storytelling skills are paramount. You need to hone those and practice. Uh, we talk about that in the book as well in terms of doing your homework and getting investors to believe in you. And, it's, and that, this is a crucial point in composing what is a compelling story, being effective in delivering it, learning along the way from the rejections that you get. Learn along the way and iterate in your uh, process as you become better and better at telling your story. And I just want to draw a fine line, finally, between effective storytelling but delusional thinking, because investors can, can sniff that out. You don't want to be you know, delusional in what you're presenting. You want to give them a dream, but it needs to be a somewhat realistic dream. <laughs> well, I'm going to move through that and say, okay, you've got the right market, 
the right opportunity, the right business model. You've got the story down, right? You've got your sales chops set up, whether it's you or you've brought in the founding team. You've gone out, you've talked to customers, they're excited, you know, you've raised a little bit of money and now it's kind of go time. And not that you haven't been going slowly along the way, but now you kind of want to unveil, let's say, and I really want to open it up. Many startups like never get past the first million. And it's like in single digits in the US anyway, I don't know what it is internationally, you're gonna know better than I, but it's like, you know, six or 7% ever make it, you know, above $5 million, right? That the, that the startup, you know, bulk people talk about businesses, but the 98% of companies around the world are these very small micro businesses that might make a million a year, a half a million a year, a million and a half. And so getting past that first, if you will, you know, hurdle of a million and then getting to five and then getting to 10, right? That scale up journey requires different skills, I'm guessing, from the startup that we just talked about, right? Because you've got to be able to scale and with scale comes revenue and with revenue comes more complexity and with more complexity, right, comes some of the bad habits that then hold companies back. So Catalina, what, what would you say around that sort of scaling from a revenue standpoint and what, what holds businesses back from crossing that million or five million mark? Very interesting question because it's a very difficult phase for many founders. And the reason why it becomes difficult, I think, overall, is it becomes a different ballgame. One could talk about, uh, you know, you found a company, you go from zero to one, that requires certain skills. You need passion, creativity, you need to start from scratch, you know, it's a small team, you know everybody. And then once you start scaling, if I call scaling one to a hundred, it basically is a different ballgame. It's not anymore about creating something. It's about managing something. It's about, you know, making sure that you grow and that you deliver day after day, that you hire people, that you build an organization with processes uh, most of the time, etc. And so it's literally something that, you know, a, a kind of company that probably, you know, starts to have a different DNA, if you see what I mean. Now, to go a little bit deeper into why it's different, one of the things we heard from close to all the entrepreneurs we talked to in the process of writing this book is that once you start growing, it all becomes about execution. Um, and executing is something different than creating. And so to get on the growth curve, first of all, you need to find the right channels. Uh, you need to make sure that you get repeat customers, that you don't have churn, that, that you get on that growth curve, you know, that you find the right way to convince customers day in, day out to come back or to buy something with you, etc. That's a different ballgame than convincing your two first pilot customers or, you know, it, and, and it's all about execution. Assuming you get there, your back end, your operations also become about executions. And we, we had a couple of founders talk to us about that in a way that really resonated with me. It was Josh Hicks from Plated who said, the problem is the sum of the parts. Every single operation seems easy and feasible. 
you know, they're in the business, Plato was in the business of milk kit companies, so they were delivering ingredients to people's places uh, so that they could cook at home. Writing the recipes, ordering the ingredients, portioning the ingredients, putting them in a box, shipping the boxes, all of that seems feasible when the volumes are low. But once growth really kicks in, it all becomes extremely complex because it's everything at once. You're relying on people. You don't have the systems typically. And you need to make sure that you deliver on your promise to your customers every day, day in, day out. And it becomes the sum of the parts. And not, you know, every single action is difficult, but when you pull it all together, it becomes extremely complicated. For many founders, by the way, that's a phase where they need to think for themselves how much they like that and how much they fit the role that is needed to continue growing. We talk about morphing yourself and, and morphing the team because the kind of team you need as you grow is going to be different. And that also applies to the founder to some extent. It is the Harvard Business Review that said, for most founders, after seven years, they should probably get in a different role than the CEO role because it is a t totally different ballgame. So those are two reasons why scaling are very difficult. It's all about execution, and that's very different than the initial phase. It also requires different people and different skills. Um, not to mention the fact that as you grow, you might need to pivot and change part of the business model we talked about in the beginning of this discussion or change your strategy. And that is extremely difficult as well. And I think that many founders underestimate the difficulty related to that phase. It all sounds great to you know, start scaling if you get on that growth curves, but it creates a lot of new challenges. Yeah, and I think you know this is why uh, being a startup founder takes a very special kind of person, right? Because it's what we've talked about in this last half hour: lots of skills, lots of risk. Um, to use the word that you use as the op as one of the opening quotes of the book from Steve Jobs, it takes a lot of perseverance. You know, there's lots of things that are coming at you and. I would say filled with self-doubt and then ex you know excitement, the, the highs and lows of, of being a startup founder. But listen, Jim and Catalina, this has just been a fantastic conversation. I could keep going, no doubt. Um, but any last uh, pearls of wisdom, if you will, uh, besides obviously those of you listening that have been interested, their book is called Smart Startups, What Every Entrepreneur Needs to Know, advice from 18 Harvard Business School founders. So Jim, uh, any last words for you, for our listeners? Oh, gosh. Well, for, for your listeners, anyone that's contemplating to be an entrepreneur, I just strongly encourage it. Think about the right time to jump. We talk about that in the book, reflecting on, you know, sort of the right timing for, for you to, to make it a reality. But we certainly encourage you to go for it. It's well worth it, despite the roller coaster and the, the emotional challenges one confronts as an entrepreneur. But we highly encourage it. It's a it's a journey worth taking, and we hope. Uh, yeah, I hope you read the book because it will help you to avoid uh, pitfalls. <laughs> Catalina, how about you? What are your final words? Yeah, read the book. Uh, there is a lot of content in the book. What surprised me the most are probably two topics we didn't talk about, Tiffany. But there are so many of them. But what surprised me the most is the importance the founders we talked to, uh, the importance they gave to two topics: culture and governance. 
and more specifically, the importance they gave to these topics very early on in their trajectories. And so I think that was surprising to me. I hope it's going to help a lot of founders to get their foundations right and to weather uncontrollables, as, as we call them. Excellent. Well, thank you both so much for spending time with me here today on the What's Next podcast. I'm your host, Tiffany Bova. If you enjoyed the show, please leave some comments. Please subscribe, share with your friends. And thank you for joining us here today. Have a great rest of your day. <laughs>